Open with me to Galatians chapter 1, and I know that sounds a little strange in light of 23 weeks turning to the book of Romans, and we are not done yet in the book of Romans. We have 15 messages left in our series, but we are taking a break from our series in Romans in order to begin an eight-week series that's going to take us through the book of Galatians, a series that we are calling Freedom in the In-Between, and we're calling that for two different reasons. Number one, we're putting it kind of right in between um, a series we're already doing, but also we as Christians are living in the in-between. We're living in the in-between of Christ's first coming and his second coming. We're living in the in-between of our salvation and being here on earth and our deliverance from all of this in heaven. So freedom in the in-between. And Today we celebrate the 245th anniversary of our founding fathers giving us our national birth certificate what we call the declaration of independence but what was in actuality for many a declaration of dependence a dependence upon god and just a quick little side note if you think that independence is more important than dependence you're going to have a hard time in your christian life because our Christian life isn't about independence apart from God. It's about complete dependence upon Him. But the Declaration of Independence was the birth certificate for this nation. But here's the deal. The men who signed it knew that it could also not just be the birth certificate. It could be their death warrant. They were signing their death warrant. The, the closing paragraph of the Declaration states this. And for the support of this Declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The 56 founding fathers, 27 of whom were trained in the ministry or trained as ministers, they took this pledge seriously. So on the morning of the signing, there was silence and gloom as each man was called up to the president of Congress to sign the document, knowing that it could lead to, or it could mean their death by hanging, yet they signed it with hopeful dependence. And this morning, 245 years removed from that, that declaration, I pray that we will take time today to celebrate the freedoms that we have as Americans, and that we would remember the price paid for those, those freedoms and the, the price that's still being paid to protect those freedoms. Praise God for the freedoms that we have. I, I was thinking this morning about Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul's talking, and he says this, or basically says this, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. You didn't choose. We didn't get to pick when we, when we would be born. We didn't get to pick where we would be born. God chose that for us. And God has given us such great grace to put us in this land at this time. We have great freedoms, but... You knew a butt was coming, right? You, you knew one was coming. But may we also never forget that it's, it's possible. It's very possible for us to have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and every other freedom that allows us to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and yet still not be truly free. It's possible to have earthly freedoms and yet not be eternally free. Only as we encounter and surrender the gospel of Jesus Christ that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ will, will we really know, truly know freedom. So I want us to dive in today to Galatians and what has been called the rough draft of Romans. So as we walk through this, there's going to be a lot of things that 
uh, are similar to what Paul wrote to Romans later on. And it's a, kind of a rough draft of what he would write. But I want us today to behold true freedom. And we're going to look today at what it means to have freedom by God's grace. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at freedom um, today by grace, next week um, in faith or through faith. Each week, a little picture of what freedom is according to the Apostle Paul. For Because here's the deal. My prayer for us as a faith family, my prayer is that, and please, I'm probably going to tick you off in, in this or some of you, but if, if I do, then you can take it up with the Lord. God did not set us free so that we could sit around and worship America. He set us free so that we could worship him. Amen. And I pray, I pray with all my being that we would come to be truly free and live truly free as God has called us to live. And so this is where we're going over the next eight weeks. So I'm going to let you sit down today because we're going to read the whole chapter of Galatians 1. I know you're going to stand up in your hearts um, as honoring God's word. But beginning in verse 1, Paul writes these words. If you have your Bibles, they're, um, it's right in front of you. If you don't, it's on the screen. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For I, or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would... Have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel? For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the church of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, today we come before you, and Lord, we celebrate the freedoms that we have as citizens of this country, Lord. But also, God, we don't want to miss the freedom that we have in you. As we walk through and begin to walk through, Lord, this book, God, just help us to see the freedoms that we have in Christ. And not just to see them, Lord, help us, God, by your Spirit to live them. 
God, today show us the freedom that we have by grace. Open our eyes, Lord, to the beauty of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to fast forward real quick from 1776 to 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation was ready to be signed. The papers were complete. All they needed were the signature of the president, but Abraham Lincoln was not ready. He had spent the morning at a reception shaking hands of all the guests, and his hand was now sore and swollen. So he said, let me wait until my hand is better. And he said this, I don't want my signature to be shaky. I want people to know that I set the slaves free in confidence. And Galatians, as we just read, states that Christ did the same for us. He set us free in confidence. For the book of Galatians, for us, is not really a declaration of independence. It's a declaration of true freedom with an explosion of joy and purpose. So what I want us to do is I want us to lift high today and hold tight to our eternal freedom given to us by Christ. I pray that we will never, ever, ever throw our freedom away. There's a story told of, and you know this, sitting on the top of the United States Capitol building is an almost 20-foot high statue known as the Freedom Lady. She was sculpted by Italian artists in the city of Rome and shipped here across the Atlantic Ocean to be placed on top of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. But during the delivery, the ship carrying the statue encountered a fierce storm. Howling winds, huge waves threatened to capsize the ship. So the skipper ordered all the cargo to be thrown overboard. But when the men came to the Freedom Lady and went to toss her, the captain shouted, No, never. We will sink before we throw freedom away. We'll sink before we throw freedom away. And this is the message of Galatians. May we never throw our spiritual freedom away. Ultimately, this is the letter that Paul wrote to Galatia telling them not to do that. Don't throw the freedom, the spiritual freedom that God has given you. Don't throw it away. And as we've seen already from our time in the book of of Romans, the church moved from Pentecost, which was 40 days after the resurrection, and the church moved into the world and very quickly became more Gentile than Jews. So the Gentiles began to take over. And as Gentiles in Jerusalem came to Christ, there was a group of Jews who stood in their way, and those Jews made their way out into these Gentile areas. So the purpose behind this letter from Paul is that a group of people called the Judaizers had made their way into the church in Galatia. These Judaizers were false teachers who were saying that in order to be saved, you had to trust Christ, but you also had to follow Jewish laws and regulations. So their their message was this. Their message was, trust Christ, but live like a Jew. Mainly, be circumcised and act Jewish. And you don't, if you don't understand all the rites of circumcision in that day, please ask Frank Robinson after the service, and he will be glad to take you through all of it. But that was the picture. Be circumcised, act Jewish. That would be like telling everyone in America who is saved, trust Christ, get your appendix out, wear a Lee Greenwood t-shirt, and act American, and you'll be saved. Now, neither one of those is the gospel. That's not the gospel, which leads us to understand, listen, 
We didn't invent the gospel. So the gospel wasn't invented by man. If it was invented by man, it wouldn't be don't trust yourself, trust Christ. If the gospel was invented by man, it would be this. Do as many good things as you can possibly do. Take your scorecard, put them all down, and eventually your good deeds will add up to your, you earning your way to heaven. Because the default setting of the human sinful heart is that we believe somehow we can earn our way. We want to earn our way. In fact, that's, we want to pull our, our bootstraps up. That's the whole American picture. Earn it. Tell, tell me what i got to do, and I'll do it. But that is not the gospel. I love the words of Charles Swindoll. In his writings on Galatians, he says this. The gospel frees us from trying to earn or retain God's favor through rule-keeping. But, and this is a great other side of it, it also keeps us from running headlong to the other extreme, willfully sinning in the name of freedom. As people saved by grace, we've been sealed by the Spirit who works in us to help us love and obey Christ and serve one another. We have been freed not to do whatever we want, but to do what God wants. So our freedom our freedom. So here's the beautiful thing, and here's the thing that kind of rubs us the wrong way. What the Bible tells us is our freedom isn't about us. It's about what God has given to us and what God wants to do in us and what God wants to do through us. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, it's been said this, the gospel is like water. We didn't invent it, but we can't live without it. We can't live without the gospel. We can't do it. So let's unpack today three truths that help us summarize Galatians 1. And we're not going to cover every little thing that Paul throws at us in this chapter, but three truths that help us summarize, hopefully, the whole picture of Galatians 1. And truth number one is this. We are called by the grace of God. So we're called by the grace of God. In verses 3 and 4, as you see on the screen, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And then verse 15, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Grace was one of Paul's favorite words. In fact, he uses it over a hundred different times in all of his writings, which is twice as many as all other New Testament writers combined. Paul's, Paul uses grace and, and threads it throughout all of his writing. And what Paul is saying is that, do you really understand how much you need God's grace? Do we really understand that? When you wake up this morning, you, need, you needed God's grace to get out of bed. I don't know if you know that, but you did. We need, God's, we need God's grace to breathe, to walk, to talk, to live. We need his grace to live out the commands of God in his word. We need his grace to pray. We need his grace to study the word of God. We need his grace to share the word of God moment by moment, day by day. We need his grace. We need his grace. And that becomes more obvious when we realize what we were before Christ. Before Christ, we were helpless. Before Christ, we were lost, which is what that word deliver means there, what it, what it implies there. I think about other religions. The founders of other religions came to teach, not to rescue. 
Now, if you ask many people today on, on the streets, as Brother Frank mentioned earlier, what is Christianity? They'll say, well, Christianity is a group of people who follow the teachings of Christ. And yes, we are, in a sense, called to follow the teachings of Christ. But here's what Paul implies. You don't rescue people by teaching. You rescue them by getting them to see that they're lost and helpless. Imagine you see a drowning person. It doesn't help that drowning person to throw them a book on how to swim. In that moment, that's not what they need. You don't throw them some teachings. You throw them a rope. You throw them rescue. Therefore, Jesus is more than a teacher. He's a deliverer. He's a rescuer. And how did Jesus deliver us? How did he rescue us? Look at verse 4 again. He gave himself for our sins. What God did for us through his son becomes your salvation, becomes my salvation. By, by which, hear this, we're delivered from the, the penalty of sin. So we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We no longer have to pay the price for sin because Jesus did it. But we also have a promise that we will also be delivered from the presence of sin. So we have been delivered from the penalty of sin, and we will also be delivered from the presence of sin, which reminds me of the following story. A wealthy, wealthy English family once invited friends to spend some time at their beautiful estate. The happy gathering was almost plunged into terrible tragedy when the children went swimming in the pool, and one of the children got in the deep water and was drowning. Thankfully, the gardener was there, and he heard the other children screaming, and he jumped in the pool and rescued this helpless victim. The youngster that was rescued that day was Winston Churchill. His parents, deeply grateful to the gardener, asked what they could do to reward him. And he hesitated, and then he said, I wish my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. And the Churchill said, we'll pay for it. Years later, when Sir Winston Churchill was prime minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. Greatly concerned, the king summoned the best physician who could be found to the bedside of this ailing leader. That doctor was Sir Alexander Fleming, the developer of penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener who had rescued Winston from drowning as a boy. Later, Churchill said this, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. Rarely has one man owed his life to the same person. Yet again, brothers and sisters, that's our spiritual declaration. Because Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. And praise God, he will deliver us from the presence of sin forever. Amen. And ever and ever. All of this done out of grace. Did you know this? We did not ask to be delivered. God did for us what we didn't even realize we needed to be done. We didn't even realize it needed to be done, and God did it. But back to Paul. The risen Savior extended mercy and grace to Paul, who was the chief of sinners. He was saved by grace and grace alone. In a flash, the light dawned before the apostle Paul. And it was not law that saved him. It was grace. It was not works. It was simple faith. It wasn't look to Moses. It was look to Jesus. It wasn't look to Sinai. It was Calvary. It was not do this and earn it. It was understand this and receive it. It wasn't try, try, try. It was Paul trust. 
trust. It was by means of undeserved, undiluted, undying grace of God. For you see, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of God. And no one is so bad that they can't receive the grace of God. We are called by the grace of God. If you are a child of God in this room, you know what that is. Because you know there was a time in your life where you know without a doubt God called you. By his spirit, he called you. You know that. Some of you were in a church, and maybe you were in the middle of an invitation, and you were grabbing as tight as you possibly could of that pew in front of you, or that chair in front of you, not wanting to do what God had called you to do. But you couldn't shake his voice. Others of you, in different ways, God called, but we are called by his grace. So we're called by the grace of God, which leads us to the second truth. We are changed by the power of God. We're changed by the power of God. So Christianity is ultimately or supremely a matter of conversion. So everything we say, everything we believe is built upon one fundamental, one primary premise that in Christ we don't stay the way we were. In Christ we are different. Our lives are radically changed by Jesus. We'll never be the same. Until then, listen, you may be religious, you may be a good person, you might never, ever, ever speed, you might have never jaywalked in your life, but if you don't know Jesus, you're not converted. Religion is one thing, but conversion is something entirely different. And the greatest conversion story in all the Bible is the story of the Apostle Paul. And listen to what Paul says in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, But when he who had set me free apart, or set me apart, excuse me, before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach among the Gentiles. No human explanation could account for the change that took place in Paul's life. Before Christ, Paul was a runaway freight train that crushed everything in its path. Before Christ, Paul was a modern-day terrorist. He terrorized the church of Jesus Christ, killing as many as possible. That is what he desired, that's what he wanted, that's what he did. Paul had completely lost control of his life, but praise God, God stepped in and took control. And focus for a moment on the first word there of verse 15. I might have to ask you guys to stand up because y'all are looking mighty pathetic right about now. Y'all need to wake up a little bit. I'm not just talking to Frank over here, I'm talking to everyone. Uh, Let's wake up a little bit. Look at this first word in verse 15, but... This is the great interruption. This is what happens when God comes into our lives. But Paul was a sinner, but God. Paul hated Jews, but God. Paul or hated Jesus, excuse me, but God. Paul killed Christians, but God. Paul attempted to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, but God. Paul enjoyed being lost, but God. Paul wasn't looking for a new life at all, but God, Paul intended to kill as many Christians as possible and more, but God. We are changed by the power of God. C.S. Lewis, 
allegorizes his conversion in the story of one of his characters in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia series. The character's name was, was Eustace, a young boy who developed an evil heart symbolized by him taking on the hard, skelly skin of a dragon all over his body. Eventually, he came to his senses, and he wants Aslan, who is the lion in the book who represents Jesus, he wants Aslan to change him back into a boy. So Aslan leads him to the fountain of pure water to bathe in, and he tells him first, before bathing, he needed to scrape off all of the dragon scales. So Eustace claws through the scales down to the skin. It's uncomfortable, but he gets it done. There's a pile of rough dragon skin on the ground, and he steps towards the pool of pure water. But as he gets ready to step in, he notices that the skin has already begun to grow back. He repeats the process three different times, but every time his skin changes back. Eventually, he looks at Aslan and says, I can't do this. And Aslan says, but I can. And he reaches out his paw to peel away Eustace's scales. And in the book, Eustace says this, the very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But when it was done, it was done, and the skin stayed off. And Lewis was describing his own conversion. C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England, whom God had to drag, kicking and screaming, into his kingdom. And what, what C.S. Lewis is saying here, maybe it's true of you today, that God had to put things in his life to tear him down. That God had to show him his need for God. Or what C.S. Lewis is saying is, God put me flat on my back so the only place I could look was up. Have you ever been there? Maybe today you're flat on your face because you've fallen that way. Turn over. <laughs> Turn over and look up. Turn over and look up. You see, this chapter is all about how God saves bad people. God can save bad people. How, how God transforms dead people by the saving power of Jesus. And some of you might be thinking right now, well, that's not my testimony. My testimony is not as powerful as Paul's. I, I never did the big sins. I was just doing the little sins. You know, I, I, never, I wasn't a 12-year-old selling drugs out of my backyard. That wasn't my testimony. My testimony isn't that big of a, a deal. But that's where we go wrong. Because according to Scripture, if you are a child of God, you were one time dead. You were one time an enemy of God. You were one time in total darkness. You were one time destined for destruction with the wrath of God upon you. But if you are a child of God, according to the word of God, you have gone from darkness into marvelous light. You have passed from death into life. All of us, according to the word of God, are beggars in need of God's grace. No matter how we, ch we judge our own stories, we are desperate people in need of a Savior. And hear this, if you call upon Jesus, he never shows up in weakness. He did that already when he came to earth. Now, anytime he shows up, he shows up in power. And he has enough power to change you, to change me, and to change everyone. 
This is the beauty of our God. We are changed by the power of God, which leads us to the last truth. Some of you need to wake up and let's finish strong together. We are, last truth is this, we're committed to the gospel of God. This kind of seemed like a, a, a weird way to end. It's not a huge, great ending like normal. But listen to what Paul says in verses 6 through 8. I'm astonished that you are turning to a different gospel. Paul couldn't get his, he couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that he had came to these people. He had started the church here. He had walked away. He had taught them. And yet they were turning away from the gospel. Then he says, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then he says this, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul even says this, even if an angel comes to you with a different gospel, let him be accursed. And those are good verses to use if you're ever talking to a Mormon or a Muslim. Because that's exactly what they believe. That an angel came and talked to their founders, but the angel told them something different than this. And Paul would say, let them be accursed. Let them be accursed. Here's the deal. What is the greatest challenge to Christianity in the 21st century in the U.S.? Is it rampant immorality? Is it divisive social issues? Is it politics? Is it increasing hostility towards God? And all of those things are dangers without a doubt. But I would say this. I would say the biggest threat to 21st century American Christianity is religion. It's religion. It's beliefs and thoughts that draw us away from the gospel. Some religions openly oppose Christ, but others are more subtle, yet they're just as dangerous. Because think about this. If I were to walk up to you today with a glass of water and I handed it to you and say, here's a glass of water and you're about to drink it, and I take a little thing and drop something and say, what is that? I say, oh, it's just a little drop of poison. It's okay. Keep drinking. Would you drink it just because most of the water is pure? Or would you pour it out saying, you're trying to kill me? Like, why would you try to kill me, Michael? What did I ever do to you? No, here's the deal. One drop of poison contaminates it all. And the same is true with the gospel. If you tamper with it, if you add anything to it, you lose the whole gospel. And what Paul is saying is these Judaizers had come on the scene and they were saying, yes, trust Christ plus this. And what Paul is saying is very clear. We don't need Christ plus anything. We need Christ, period. Amen. Let me say it again. We don't need Christ plus anything. We need Christ, period. And let me end this way. What is the gospel? I think we live in a world where if we were to ask many people in the church what's the gospel, many of them would have many different answers. I don't know why that is. I don't know if you remember our, our time... In, in Romans 1.16, where we unpack what the gospel was. But here's the deal. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God, who created everything in heaven and on earth, under his perfect design, and created us, even though we turned against him, graciously and lovingly looked at us, a sinful people who defied him and because of his love for us and in grace he sent his son to our world born of a virgin his son came 
and lived a perfect life, or a life that we could never live, a life of total perfection in which Jesus never, ever, ever sinned. And then in his sinless body, Jesus died a death that none of us could ever die, a death for the sins of the world. And in Jesus' death, he endured all of the wrath of God. When Jesus was in the garden talking about this cup, he was hoping it would be taken from him. That cup was all of God's wrath. And on the cross, Jesus drank every last drop of this cup. He turned the cup upside down and said, it is finished. And not one drop came out. But here's the deal. The gospel doesn't just stop at the cross, and it doesn't stop in a cemetery. Jesus also conquered an enemy that we could never conquer, sin, death, and the grave, proving every claim Jesus ever made so that anyone who turns away from their sin, who repents of their sin and turns away from trusting in themselves and turns to Jesus Christ alone, trusting him as Savior and Lord, will be saved and will be free both now and forever. That is the gospel message. And here's the question this morning in closing. Do you know that freedom? Do you have that freedom? Do you celebrate that freedom? Listen, this is an awesome day of celebration. This is an amazing day. Some people, I don't know what they were thinking, but less than 11 o'clock, people were shooting off fireworks. I don't know where freedom is on July 3rd, but um, July 4th is it. But here's the deal. There's going to be a lot of celebration today. And it's great, and I'm thankful that we can celebrate the freedom that we have. But God help us if we celebrate that more than this. If we celebrate the freedom that we have here more than the freedom that we have for all of eternity. Because here's the reality, and I don't know if you know this, God has never promised us freedom in this life. God hasn't promised us. If you come to me, you're going to live in a land that is free. That is not the promise of God. You'll never find that promise in Scripture. So what we have right now is because of God's grace, and it's not promised to last. It's not promised to last. I wish I could say it was. It's not promised to last. But there is a freedom that's promised to last forever. And it's freedom that will never be taken away. It's freedom in Christ. Do you have it? Do you know it? Oh, that you do. Or oh, that you will. That we would understand freedom by His grace. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to call the musicians, Brother Frank Ford, and enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever God is telling you to do, may you do it. The, freedom of, the Spirit of the Lord is here. There is freedom to do that. So let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. And thank you for the freedom that comes to us through your Son, Jesus. Lord, that we are free indeed. The Son has set us free. Well, I pray for anyone in this room today who has never experienced that freedom. That today would be a day of spiritual freedom for them. God, again, Lord, I don't want people to hear what I'm not saying. Lord, I thank you for the blessings of this country. I thank you for your grace poured out upon this country. You have, oh God, indeed shed your grace upon us. But Lord, we have not always used that grace wisely. And we have not always used that grace poured out upon us to follow you, to desire you, to seek you, to serve you. 
Lord, help us as believers in this land to use the freedoms that we have been given, God, to serve you, to serve others, to love you, to love others. And help us, God, just to understand the ultimate freedom that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. That's not just a freedom that we get to celebrate, Lord, one time of year or, Lord, just throughout our lives, we get to celebrate that freedom for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that that's a freedom we all know. And if not, I pray it's a freedom we will come to know even this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wherever he leads. Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. So So oh.